Well, today we conclude a sermon series called Matters of the Heart. This is the fourth and final week, and this series has been all about fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. In the fifth chapter of the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And ever since Paul wrote these words in the year 48 AD, they've been quoted over and over again. In fact, we might be tempted to think that Paul gave us a metaphor that was so good that it was destined to become famous, that we just couldn't help but repeat Paul's words over and over again. And in a way, that's true, but here is the whole truth. When Paul first wrote these words in 48 AD, they recalled something that was already in the minds of the readers. These words flipped a switch and turned on a light bulb in their consciousness. You see, Paul doesn't pull this metaphor out of thin air. He doesn't make this up himself. On the contrary, this image, the image of a vine and its fruit, was already very familiar to Paul's audience. The reason why Paul's audience was already familiar with this image, the image of a vine and its fruit, is because Paul's audience consisted of Jews. Paul's audience consisted of Jews and the Hebrew Bible, the sacred texts of the Jewish people, what we often call the Old Testament, is peppered with this image. In the Old Testament, the vine is a common symbol for the nation of Israel the covenant people of God. Uh, and if you look in your sermon notes, I've put some examples there for you. Your sermon notes are found on the back of your connection card in your bulletin. So, for example, in the book of Isaiah, it says, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. In the book of Jeremiah, I planted you as a choice vine, holy of pure seed, in the book of Hosea, it says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. Friends, in the very same way that the bald eagle is a national symbol for the United States of America, the vine was a national symbol for the nation of Israel. And so the first point that I want to make today, the first point in your sermon notes is this. Paul doesn't make this metaphor, the metaphor of a vine and its fruit, famous. No, he uses this metaphor because it's already famous. This image had already been imprinted indelibly in the mind of the readers. Of course, the most famous use of this metaphor isn't by Isaiah or Jeremiah or Hosea. And years before the words fruit of the Spirit came from the lips of Paul, something very similar came from the lips of the one that we call Lord. Jesus Christ. In the 15th chapter of the book of John, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. So when Jesus employs this metaphor, he doesn't leave much room for interpretation does he? Like, we can't just say, oh, well, the vine, that's, maybe that's Moses, and the branches, that's 
Aaron. No, Jesus doesn't give us that choice. When Jesus uses this metaphor, he explains it, and he tells us plainly, I am the vine. You are the branches. My father is the gardener, the one in charge of it all. This metaphor, my friends, this metaphor, though simple, is not simplistic. This metaphor, though simple, is actually quite profound. It tells us some powerful and some necessary lessons that all of us can use. And the first lesson has to do with our source of life as Christians. Our source of life. Recently, I heard the story of a combat vet of the Iraq War. Uh, she was a part of the initial force that went into the country in the initial stages of the war um, when things were really, really bad. And toward the end of her deployment, uh, her luck ran out. And she was caught in a firefight, and she was very badly injured. She had to be medevaced out of the country. And she returned to civilian life with PTSD. Still haunted and disturbed by all that she experienced, she tried all sorts of things to help her to cope but nothing seemed to work. Nothing seemed to work, that is, until she moved out of the city and into the country and began farming. The most healing and therapeutic thing for her was farming because, she said, farming is all about creation. It's about life over death, not death over life. In the book of John, Jesus uses a metaphor from farming, from agriculture, vines and branches. And I think he uses this metaphor for the very same reason that this combat vet of the Iraq war said. It's all about creation. It's all about life and death and life triumphing over death. Vines and branches are intimately, organically, vitally connected. And one's life depends on the other. The vine is the main artery of the plant. Without a strong connection to the vine, branches wither and die, becoming good for little more than kindling. Without a strong connection to the vine, branches receive no nourishment and they can bear no fruit. In short, branches are wholly dependent on the vine. For a branch, the worst possible fate is to be cut off, to be cut off from the vine. Remember that phrase. That's an important phrase, cut off. Remember it and save it for later. Six months ago, I got a little taste of this. Uh, last August, I woke up in the middle of the night with my head on the bathroom floor. My eyes could barely open, but my ears could hear, and I could hear the voice of my wife. She was standing over me, talking into the phone to a 911 operator, and she said, hurry, please hurry. Uh, the previous afternoon, it was a Sunday afternoon, I began to bleed internally. And I didn't know what was going on at the time, but uh, my colon was bleeding. Um, I just knew that something was wrong. And so eventually, I drove myself to the doctor, to the hospital. And the doctor ran some tests and kind of checked things out. And he didn't think that there was any grave danger. He said, you know, go home. Uh, I think you're fine. Um, keep an eye on your symptoms and call your specialist in the morning. And so that's what I did. But my, con my colon continued to bleed, so that by the middle of the night, I had lost a significant amount of blood. 
an alarming amount of blood. I I woke up at four o'clock in the morning. I was sick and depleted, and I tried to make my way to the bathroom, and it was then that I lost consciousness. I passed out, and my head hit the bathroom floor. Well, an ambulance came, took me to the hospital, and I was greeted by the very same doctor who had examined me just a few hours before. He ordered another round of tests, and this time I think he took the results seriously. I could hear him react from all the way in another room. He said, whoa, this guy's lost a lot of blood. He had an audible reaction to my condition. Uh, In the ER, uh, I felt like I waited for forever. Um, Each minute felt like an hour. I was feeble and weak, and at one point, I began to feel a tingling in my limbs and in my lips, and I said to myself, you know, I I don't think that's a very good sign. (laughs) And so this patient decided that he had been patient enough. Uh, I reached out my hand and I took the elbow of the nurse standing beside me and I mustered all my strength to bring my lips to her ears and I said, I need blood. And she assured me very sweetly, she said, I know, we've ordered an IV for you. And so a few minutes later, the nurse began an IV, an intravenous fluid drip. She hooked a bag of blood onto a stand and the contents of it began to flow into my veins and soon the symptoms abated and my condition stabilized. The tingling in my limbs went away and my health returned. I say this without overstatement. That IV was my salvation. My welfare depended on the tube that went into my arm and the contents that that tube delivered to my veins. That blood was precious to me. And the the song, the words of the great hymn rang true in my ears. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. Well, the next day as I lay in that hospital bed, I glanced often at the IV going into my arm, and my mind went to the words of Christ. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, he can do nothing. In the same way that I had to be connected to an IV to be healthy, branches have to be connected to the vine. And in the same way that branches have to be connected to the vine, Christians have to be connected to Christ. They must abide in Christ. And that's an important word, abide. It appears about 10 times in a short 13-verse passage. The word abide, um, it's not used much anymore. It's not really a part of our daily lexicon. Um, But it's not so old and antiquated that we don't know what it means. It means to live with or to dwell with. Um, Abide comes from the same root as abode which means home. And so Dale Bruner, the great biblical scholar, takes the original Greek of this passage and translates the passage like this. Make your home with me as I do with you. Just as a branch cannot bear fruit all by itself unless it makes its home with the root, no more can you bear fruit unless you make your home with me. I love that thought and that idea. Make your home with Christ. 
What's more, the word abiding, there's some nuance to it. The word abiding means constant and faithful, as in they had a deep and abiding love for each other. It means to continue without fading or being lost. And this too sheds light on what Jesus meant. It means stick with me, persevere with me, continue with me faithfully. Don't just be a flash in the pan. Don't just come to me for a little salvation and get your fix and then be on your way, never to be seen or heard again. Continue with me. Make your home with me. And so, friends, how do we do that? That's the next and the natural question. How do we abide in Christ? How do we make our home with him? How do we continue faithfully with Christ without fading or being lost How do we as branches remain vitally connected to our source of life? Well, there are several ways, of course, and today I just want to highlight a few, and they appear in your sermon notes. Uh, In the interest of time, I'm not going to expound on them. I'm just going to name them briefly. The first way that we can abide in Christ is by prayer. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, uh, said to be A Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Indeed, prayer is like oxygen for us. The more we do it and the deeper we do it, the better and the healthier we are as Christians. First, prayer. Second, Bible study. I love this quote, which is attributed to Mark Twain. He says, the man who does not read good books has no advantage over the one who cannot read at all. How right and how true. Uh, Whether we read for pleasure or for edification, we ought to be a reading people. Those who don't read may as well be illiterate. Not only should we read good books, we should read the good book, the best book, the Bible, the Word of God. And if we don't, we become willingly ignorant of God and God's ways, and all that God has done for us and for our salvation. First, prayer. Second, Bible study. The third way that we can abide in Christ is worship. Church historian Ulrich Vilkins correctly notes that in the earliest church, the communal worship service was the central source of all Christian living. In the early church, People didn't miss worship for no good reason. Everything else in the life of the church flowed from that service of worship. And so to miss it was to miss everything. It was like trying to uh, make an archway without a keystone. They had to have it. And without it, nothing else quite worked. Third, worship. And the fourth one, my friends, is mission. Right now, even as I speak, a group of folks from Woodmont Christian Church is living this one out. Just like you are living out number three, worship, they are living out number four, mission. Through Habitat for Humanity, they're building a safe, quality, warm, dry, affordable shelter for a family that would not otherwise be able to afford it. They are thereby lifting this family out of poverty. They're doing what theologian Willard C. Smith says. They are making someone else's life better, and they're not wasting time with their own concerns. They're doing this right now, even in the cold and rain. 
Prayer, scripture, worship, and mission. This is the last week in the sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit. And friends, if we want to grow any or all of the fruit of the Spirit, then these practices must be a part of our lives. They're not the only ways, but they're certainly primary ways that we abide in Christ. Sisters and brothers, if we abide in Christ, then we are sure to be fruitful. And being fruitful is the purpose for which we are made. It's nothing short of that. Believe me, being fruitful is the purpose for which we are made. Remember what we said at the beginning of the sermon. The Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is replete with references to the vine and fruit. And, you know, when uh, Jesus was using this metaphor, he wasn't thinking about apple trees and orange trees. He really had something um, specific in mind. He was thinking about a grape vine, a grape vine with clusters of grapes gathered around one another. And before it was Paul, it was Jesus. Before it was Jesus, it was Isaiah Jeremiah and Hosea and many others, this image, the image of vines and fruits, a grapevine, goes back to the very beginning of the Bible, to the very first page, literally to the first page. In Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, there's a theological account of the formation of the universe. There's a theological retelling of how the world came to be. God creates the physical, material world God creates the heavens and the earth and fills it with living things. And at the crown of creation, at the top of the food chain, he places man and woman to be creation's careful stewards. Well, after creating man and woman, he gives them a command, and it's very important. Look with me in your sermon notes. Genesis 1, beginning in verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful. Be fruitful and multiply. It is no overstatement to say that being fruitful is the purpose for which we are made. You know, the world in which we live tells us that being successful is the purpose for which we are made. It tells us this however many times a day in all sorts of ways. Being successful is the purpose that we are made for. But God, whose still small voice whispers through the scriptures, tells us that being fruitful is the purpose for which we are made. And being fruitful and being successful can be two very different things. Successful, as defined by the world, means fame and fortune. It means Facebook friends and Twitter followers. But being fruitful means being filled with love and joy and peace. Successful means money, sex, and power. But fruitful means patience, kindness, and goodness abounding in these things. Successful means designer clothes and a fancy car. Fruitful means faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Being fruitful means being faithful to God and a blessing to our fellow man and woman. Being fruitful is the purpose for which we are made, and being fruitful brings glory to God. That's the last point 
in your sermon notes. Being fruitful is the purpose for which we are made, and being fruitful brings glory to God. You know, when I think of fruitfulness, my mind just has to go to someone special, to someone specific, the one that we call Lord, Jesus Christ. The one that we call Lord had no wealth of which to speak. He did not own a home. The roof over his head was the starry sky. To live, he depended upon the hospitality and the generosity of others. He was dependent on others to survive. He did not wear a designer cloak. He did not drive a fancy donkey. He began with 12 followers and ended with 11. His Facebook page only had 12 friends and one person unfriended him. <laughs> Successful he was not, but fruitful, absolutely. He was the most fruitful person to ever live. He was love, joy, and peace. He was kindness and goodness and faithfulness. He was gentleness and patience and self-control. He was all those things embodied in human flesh. He was faithful to God and a blessing to his fellow man and woman. His was a fruitful life. And friends, when he left us, he left us a constant reminder of his fruitfulness. He left us a legacy of sorts. And that reminder, that legacy is a simple cup. It's a communion cup, a cup filled with wine, a cup filled with the fruit of the vine, grapes that have been pressed. Jesus poured his whole fruitfulness into this cup for us to drink. Friends, every single time that we come to the communion table, let's remember. Let's remember the one who bore much good fruit when he walked the earth. Let's remember the one who glorified God with a harvest of righteousness. Let's remember the one who said, greater love hath no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Let's remember that the contents of this cup, though bitter for him, are sweet to us. He was cut off so that we might live. Let's remember Jesus Christ, the true vine in whom we have true, abundant, and eternal life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.